once more as we prepare to enter God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the bread of life and that this living word is food for our souls. And so we pray, Lord, that we would receive it eagerly, that you would give us uh, hearts, minds, spirits to receive this, this food, and that as well that this food would fuel us to be the hands and feet who will live out this mission of Jesus in the world around us. So bless it to that end, I pray. Speak through me, your servant, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if we uh, cue up this first slide, uh, this morning it is the fourth part of our church's mission statement. We have been doing a sermon series on keeping the mission in focus these uh, past number of weeks. And we have been putting the, uh, if you recall from the first one, the laser focus, if you will, on each one of them, serving with our hands, loving with our hearts, showing Christ's love, and now today, growing God's family, growing God's family. Now, when we talk about growing, we mean two things by this statement, two specific things. First, we aim to grow in depth. So that means that we personally aim to grow in depth as children of God. Secondly, we aim to grow in breadth or width, if you will. So growing in depth means that as followers of Jesus Christ, as his disciples, we seek to continually grow in the depth of our personal faith, our character, our obedience, and our relationship to our Heavenly Father. You've likely heard some version of this statement uh, speaking about some mega church or another, that they might be uh, a mile wide, but they're an inch deep. Have you ever heard a statement like that before? Basically, by that, we're, we're meaning a mile wide and an inch deep, that while they may be good at attracting a lot of people to attend, they're not necessarily as good at growing that depth of faith and character and Christ-likeness. And so we want to make sure that we're not just a mile wide and an inch deep. But we can't stop there either. For if our laser focus is only on our personal growth, only looking inward to ourselves, I think we could also run the risk of becoming a mile deep and an inch wide, if that makes sense, using the same analogy, right? If we only focus on ourselves, yeah, we can, we can know a lot, we can grow a lot, but if that's not working outwards, we're also missing a key part of our faith and our walk with Christ. I've shared this analogy before, but I want to share it with you again because it's just so relevant. If we take the Dead Sea, for instance, and so uh, in this, this next slide, I'm going to see if I can advance to the next slide. Don't you just love that picture? There's your, there's your pastor and his wife, and we're as happy as a pig in mud right there. Because we're covered in Dead Sea mud, and that is actually the Dead Sea behind us. And so we were there in 2015 on our tour. And if you're wondering, apparently it was supposed to be really good for your skin, this Dead Sea mud. Now, I always regretted not getting a picture like this taken, because I did float like that. I just didn't have the newspaper thing to get a picture like that. But uh, that's quite an iconic picture, because there's someone floating without any, just so you're clear, there's no life jacket under him, there's no floating device, he is literally just floating in the Dead Sea reading a newspaper. And so, now, of course, the question is, why can someone float in the Dead Sea like that? Well, it's because the salt concentration of the Dead Sea is around 31%, so that's extremely high. 
And so this 31% salt concentration results in a natural buoyancy that allows anyone, even if you're not a swimmer, like you say, I, I swim like a rock, even if that's you, you could still do this. You can float as easily on the Dead Sea as if you're on an inflatable mattress. In fact, that's almost how it feels. Uh, and so how did this high salt content come to be, this 31% concentration? Well, the explanation is the Jordan River comes in from the north of the Dead Sea. So there is an inlet of water continually flowing into the Dead Sea, but there's no outlet. And so water comes in, but it can't go out. And so over the centuries of time, as the Jordan River's waters continually filled into the Dead Sea, and, and you know, the water's continually evaporating, and, and, and everything that that water washes in is just left behind. So that includes all of the nutrients, all of the salt content, all of the minerals are just continually being deposited into the Dead Sea. And so that is how it literally got its name, because it is dead. For all of those nutrients, nothing can live there. There are no fish in the Dead Sea. There are no bulrushes growing along its edges. There's just nothing. It is a dead sea. And so where am I going with this? Well, in a similar way, the Christian life that is solely focused inward on itself can become like the Dead Sea. For if we only have a steady inflow of teaching, sermons, fellowship, all of those disciplines, but then we have no outflow of service, of love, of witness to others, then like the Dead Sea, we eventually become stagnant and spiritually lifeless. So in the same way, we might have a 31% concentration of biblical knowledge, but what good is that if we don't use that with an outflow from our lives to help bring eternal life and God's love to others? And so you see, this incredible salvation that we've received, it's just too good to keep to ourselves. And so as we grow in depth, we must also make diligent effort to grow in breadth. By which I mean, of course, numerical growth. Numerical growth as more people are being saved and becoming followers of Jesus Christ by responding in repentance and faith to God's gracious gift of salvation. And so with this now firmly fixed in our minds that we're talking about growing God's family in this way, I want you to turn with me to today's scripture from Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And here we're going to set the scene by looking at the first verse of this chapter in Luke chapter 14 and verse 1. The scene is set like this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. So we're going to stop right there, and I want to point out for you three key details that Luke wanted to convey as he set the scene for this passage. The first detail is that Luke wants us to know that it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Now, of course, for, for the Jews, that is Saturday, the seventh day of the week, is the Sabbath. And it being the Sabbath, especially in that day, meant that all 39 categories plus subsets, so 39 categories, broad categories, and, and then subset of very detailed lists of things you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. So basically, any and all forms of work are completely prohibited on the Sabbath. And so these are all in full effect as this story begins. It's the Sabbath. 
Secondly, Luke wants us to know that he has received and uh, Jesus has received and is responding to a dinner invitation from a prominent Pharisee. So this isn't just a regular dinner invitation. This is a special one because this is a VIP of the Jewish uh, culture. Being a prominent Pharisee likely will have inferred that he will have been a member of the ruling Sanhedrin. That's the, the top class of the religious rulers in Jewish culture based in Jerusalem. And so this is, a, this is a special, this is a who's who of an invitation for Jesus to receive. However, Jesus going to eat with people, receiving invitations, was not at all unusual. We know from all of the Gospels that Jesus ate and drank with a wide, wide variety of people. He would sit down at a dinner table with his disciples, of course. Of course, like this, he would sit down with the religious class, the respectable people of society. But what Jesus was notorious for was that he would also dine and, and sit down at the table with the low class. Not just the low class financially, but the low class spiritually, at least according to the Jews. He would dine with prostitutes, complete outcasts of society like, like lepers. Uh, he would associate himself with sinners of all types and stripes. Even with a notorious tax-collecting cheater named Zacchaeus, Jesus says, I'm going to go home and dine with you this night. And so for this reason, Jesus' enemies often accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. And so here we see this setting is, is this, this meal that Jesus often ministered to people in these types of settings. The third detail Luke points out to us in the, the last line of verse 1 is Jesus was being carefully watched. He was being carefully watched. So, in other words, this is for all you Star Wars fans out there. Are there any Star Wars fans here this morning? Is there a couple, there's a couple in the back who are willing to admit it, a couple of, couple of nerds. You see, I'm, I'm not in the nerd category, but I enjoyed, I enjoyed the movies. I've seen probably all of them, except for maybe the newest ones, but... Nonetheless, this is, this is for you guys. So, this setting is, it's a trap. <laughs> now, you Star Wars nerds, of course, know that that is uh, Admiral Akbar, And this is a famous uh, quote from the movie Return of the Jedi, where, oh no, it's a trap. And uh, everything goes wrong in this moment. And it's a, a famous meme on the internet. So, in the same way... Jesus is going into a setting that is a trap, quite literally. In fact, we know from other parts in the Gospels where, where it specifically gives details that they were trying to trap Jesus in his words. They were setting up scenarios to try to trip him up. We saw in the children's video earlier how the Pharisees constantly were jealous and resented Jesus' ability to perform miracles and draw the crowds to himself. And so everything he did just angered them even more. So they were continually looking for a way to get at him. And so it's quite likely that in this specific instance, this trap that they're setting up, this dinner invitation to this, to this prominent Pharisee's house, isn't just happenstance. It wasn't just like, oh, Jesus, we're having a dinner party. Please come on over. They planned this in advance. Every detail will have been set up with the goal of getting Jesus to somehow make a mistake, to trip up somehow so they can nail him on it. In fact, it's quite likely that the specific detail that it was the Sabbath was a part of that trap because they knew they could possibly trip him up on one of the many Sabbath laws. And so, going into this, 
Does Jesus uh, come into this unaware? Is he just whistling on in, ignorant of what is going on around him? Well, of course not. We, we know that Jesus can know the thoughts, the hearts, the intents of men even before uh, things would transpire. And so Jesus knows full well as he goes to this dinner party that it, it's a trap. And so if I'm going into a situation that I know in advance is a trap, how am I going to behave? Well, for me personally, I'm probably going to go in and try to keep a low profile. I'm going to be very careful to just not do anything to, to you know, ruffle feathers or, or ripple the water, so to speak. And so that's how we would expect Jesus to go in, right? He knows it's a trap. He's going to go in and keep a low profile, right? Well, let's keep reading. Verses 2 to 3. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy is a, a condition where there's extra fluid and bloating and swelling. It's very painful. So Jesus walks in. Behold, before him there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him up? And they could not reply to these things. Now, take note this whole dynamic here. Jesus isn't keeping a low profile. No, he's going in all guns a-blazing, so to speak. You know, he comes in, he poses this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then the very first thing he does is he actually heals this man right in front of their very eyes, sends him away, and then secondly, demonstrates his superior knowledge to them of the Sabbath law by stating the law that when human life or even a livestock's well-being or life is in danger, like the scenario he, he gave of someone or an ox, a son or an ox falling in a well, the, the law that was given to Moses states that when that type of life is in danger, a Jew is not only allowed, but in fact required to violate any other Sabbath work law that would stand in the way of saving that person. So Jesus demonstrates they think he's breaking the law, but no, he's actually keeping it better than they even understand it. And so he poses the question, who of you wouldn't do the same if it was your own son who is in danger? And so he throws this in their faces, and notice their response? Zip, nothing, nada, nushed. <laughs> They're just stupefied. Jesus has just walked into their trap, and now he's giving it to them. And they don't know what to say. They don't know how to respond. And I can just imagine that, that look on their faces. And this is from one of the, the my, many films made of Jesus' life where the, those Pharisees, you can just picture them, the, those faces, those eyes, constantly piercing, inspecting, judgmental, angry. There's no love in those eyes. They are constantly looking for a way to get at Jesus. But I, I just love this part. That here it's the Pharisees who have set the trap, but it's Jesus who is taking them to school. And he doesn't stop there. He then continues to take them to school. Verses 7 to 11, he schools them on their pride and the need for, for humility. 
These are prideful men, and here he is teaching them about humility. The places at the table is the context that he uses to get this across. Then in verses 12 to 14, he continues to challenge them that when they're having a big dinner party like this, don't just invite people who can repay the favor, but invite the poor, the crippled, like that guy at your door that I just healed, by the way. Invite those people in, the poor, the crippled, the blind, anyone who can't repay the favor, so that God will repay you at the resurrection of the righteous. And so finally, after Jesus' three direct challenges, walking into this trap and just giving it to them, one after the other after the other, finally, one of the Pharisees finds his voice. And in verse 15, he piously states, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. That's how I envision him saying it. <laughs> Blessed is the man. He just makes this statement piously, you know, because they, they can't say anything else. He's just trying to jump in with what Jesus has just said, that thereby inferring, you know, we are those righteous people. We are the ones who will eat in that feast. Blessed is the man, namely me, who will eat at that feast. And so I can just imagine this man says that. Jesus looks at the man, knows his heart, knows his thoughts, knows everything about this man. And then he responds with this great parable, the parable of the great banquet. Verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And then proceeds three sets of excuses. The first is, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. The second is, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. And, and the third is, I've just gotten married and, and therefore I cannot come. Now, without dissecting each of these excuses, what do these all have in common? They're all bogus. <laughs> That's what they all have in common. These excuses just don't stand up to scrutiny. Because the first, no one buys a piece of land without looking at it first. No one in that culture would have dared buying um, five yoke of oxen, that's significant wealth, without having carefully inspected those animals first. So that one doesn't hold up. And yeah, you got married. In that culture, it was understood that if a man was invited to a party, the wife is invited too. Like, she's coming along. Yes, bring your wife. That's great you're married. Come eat with us together. So none of these excuses hold up. Jesus is showing these excuses are flimsy. They're bogus. I recently read a story about four college freshmen. I was a college freshman once, so I can resonate with this story a little bit. I read a story about four college freshmen that hung out together and were always intent on having more fun than on studying. And I knew a few guys like that in college. And these guys were always late for certain classes, uh, assignments, and, and one class in particular because they knew that the professor of this one class was just a total pushover. And so they, they took it to the, to the extreme. And so they would always have a multitude of excuses for him as to why their assignments weren't finished on time or why they hadn't you know, even bothered to show up for class. And he seemed to keep buying it over and over again. And so when it came time for the final exam, of course, they were late. And about the time that everyone else was finishing the exam, they showed up giggling, joking. And when the professor asked why you were late, one of them piped up to say, oh, their car had had a flat tire. And so would we be able to have an extension to make up the test later? 
And so the professor looks at these four young men and he says, no problem. I will give you a time extension right here and now and I will give each one of you a seat in the four corners of this classroom. And I will prepare a special final exam just for you four. I'll even make it easier for you. This exam will only have one question on it. Only one. If you get it right, you pass the whole course, even though you failed you know, to hand in a whole lot of assignments. Answer this one question correctly, and all of you will pass. And the guy's eyes are big. Whoa, one question. This, is, this guy is such a pushover. They're excited. Yeah, they agreed to it. And so he promptly seats each of them in each corner of the classroom. They couldn't talk to each other. And he got a, a little binder out, and he scribbled the one question in each one of the folders, and he handed it to them. And so now, as each one of them, with excitement, look at the one question that they just have to ace to get this one thing right and pass the whole course without doing anything else, their hearts sank as they saw the question. Which tire was flat? (laughs) They couldn't confer with each other (laughs) to get that story straight. The odds of all four of them guessing, the right, yeah, it's not going to happen. And they realized in that moment that they were busted. And as the professor stood there looking at each one of them in turn, <laughs> they all looked at each other in turn, and finally they realized there was no way out of this. And they stood up, and they tossed their exam books in the trash can as they walked out. They had earned their F. And despite their prof's leniency, their excuses caught up with them in the end. It's the same way for us with God. This is the heart of what Jesus is driving at with this parable. Yes, he is extremely, extravagantly merciful and patient with us. And so it's incredibly easy for someone to continue to make excuses for why they will not accept God's invitation to join his table, to join his family. But one day, the final exam will come, and all the excuses in the world combined will not get someone into God's banquet. And if we jump ahead to the end of the story in verse 24, we read this sober statement. It says, I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is serious stuff. And so let me just at this point just say to anyone listening today, If you haven't yet received God's free invitation to join his family by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, please don't make any excuses. Please don't make any more than maybe you already have. Don't delay any further. God loves you and he deeply desires for you to say yes to his invitation. It's a free invitation. It's paid for. The table is set and he says, come, come, be my child. Sit with me around my table. You are welcome. Please don't delay. If you, if you are not sure if you have responded to this invitation or if you've been putting it off or making excuses, please do it today. God wants you around his table. He loves you. And that invitation is for you. And if you're not sure how to do that, please come find me after. I'd love to talk with you and walk you through it. Talk to another believer that you know in your family. I'm sure they would love to pray with you, to talk you through making that decision. It's the best decision you will ever make. So don't miss this. As we now return to our text in verse 21. Not surprisingly, the host of the feast is angry at these bogus excuses. 
And so now he sends his servant back out to go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, bring in the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Now notice here, God does not discriminate about who can join his family. He wants everyone to join. Not just the rich, not just the respectable, not just the outwardly religious. God wants, desires deeply the cast-offs of society, the messed up and the no good. And he says to his servant, go out and find those people, invite them. And the servant does, he goes out, he extends the invitation, and guess what? They came. They came. There's no excuses. They're there just like that. Wow, a feast is prepared and we're invited? We're not waiting around. They were there. Now, I just want this to sink in. This is what growing God's family looks like. Every single day around this entire world, God's family is growing like this. Every day, God's family is growing as he is continually adopting new sons and new daughters who are responding to his gracious invitation to come. The table is prepared. Come in faith, in humility, in repentance, and in belief in Jesus. And you are welcome around this table, not just as a guest or as a visitor, but as a full-fledged child of God, a place at the table with your name on it. In Romans 8, verses 14 to 17, our call to worship, the Apostle Paul expounds on this incredible truth. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share with his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In response to this amazing truth, the Apostle John can't contain his joy, and in 1 John 3, 1, he exclaims, how great is the love of God that he has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. It's a big deal. And, and if we can't get excited about being called a, children, a child of God, then you just can't get excited about anything. Trying to wrap our heads around being a co-heir with Christ when I have done literally zero zilch and nada nushed to earn that title is just beyond me. Christ did it all. And this, this gracious invitation is so lavish that he says, I did it all, I paid for it all, and come on in and join in this inheritance as though you had done it yourself. As though you were the one who had died on the cross. It's for you. Accept this invitation. Wow, it's incredible, and I cannot even begin to wrap my, my mind, my heart fully around what it is that I can call him Abba, a term of endearment in Hebrew that literally translates as Daddy, Papa. It's not just Heavenly Father, it's Daddy, Papa, you are mine and I am your child. That is our position if we have come through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I can't speak for anyone else this morning, but I hope you can tell I absolutely love being a child of God. Don't you? Can I get an amen to that? There is no other title in this world better 
than to be a child of God. I don't care what it is. There is none greater. So now, after all of that, I'm a child of God. We can just piously kick back and say like that Pharisee, blessed is the man, namely me, who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. And then I can just put my feet up and relax, right? I'm at the table. Well, hold on. Not so fast. Let's go back to 22 and 23 and listen closely. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still more room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I want you to look around you just for a quick second this morning. Is there more room here? Is there more room in your pew? Maybe. There's, there's a couple more spots, right? And if these all fill up, would there still be more room? Absolutely. Those would be good problems to have, right? In God's family, so long as it is today, a day of grace, there is always more room. And God's desire, he says it right here, is that my house will be full. He doesn't want the kids around the table to just be content with their own spot. He wants us engaged in this mission where he says to the servant, go out and compel them. Don't just take their excuses at face value. Tell them, no, get in here. You don't want to miss this. And I really think in this parable, the unsung hero is the servant. Because notice, every time the master tells him to go, he goes. He does it. There are no excuses, no questions asked. This servant is doing God's work in full obedience. And that is our role today as a child of God, to go out and extend this invitation. Because my friends... There are a lot more room. There is a lot more room around God's table. And it's always urgent. There's a story, a true story, told from the era from the past century that was known as the Great Depression. And during the Great Depression, everyone was poor, and some areas more so than others. In a coal mining region of the eastern part of Tennessee, they were incredibly hard hit by poverty. And the miners' families living in these tiny shacks or sprinkled around the lower part of one of those coal mines were sometimes, uh, you know, they were subject to, to further troubles beyond the normal from, from the natural elements. And as if things weren't bad enough as they were barely, barely hanging on just to, to the basics of life, barely enough food to eat. One spring, the rain suddenly came particularly strong. And there had been a drought before, and so everything was saturated, so the water just turned into floodwaters almost instantly. And so the small stream down in their valley spilled over its banks and began sweeping away their homes from bad to worse. Everyone was in trouble in this, in this era. Everyone needed help, but they were in dire straits as their homes were being washed away, and many of them people being washed away. And so, on one of the worst days of the flooding, a man named Mr. Underwood had taken note of these people's plight. And he had also taken note that no one of any significance, authority, or wealth had cared enough to do anything to help these dirt-poor miners in their time of distress. And so Mr. Underwood drove his mule team down to the edge of the floodwaters, and he began to bring loads of families up to higher ground. And all day, he made one trip after another with his mule team in their little wagon, bringing load after load of people up from the floodwaters. 
He went well into the night because he was determined to leave no one behind. My friends, floodwaters are rising all around us. And we have the message of the gospel that can bring hope, living hope, to a dying world. And the floodwaters are rising just as they were in the days of Noah. And Jesus says, in the last day, as in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And those floodwaters are rising all around us. And we have the high ground of salvation. We have the table of the Lord. Are we going to be like Mr. Underwood, like the servant in the parable? Are we willing to go out and bring them in? As I said at the beginning, this incredible salvation we've received is just way too good to keep to ourselves. In fact, the master doesn't want us to keep it to ourselves. He tells us to go out and compel others to come in so that his house would be full. May we take this word from the Lord, this challenge for ourselves personally, that we would see that we who have received this great salvation have a tremendous privilege to extend it to others. May we do so with courage in these days. May we do so with wisdom, with grace, and with persistence because we don't know how much time we have. But we know the end is coming. And so may we be diligent to continue to extend this incredible invitation. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for that privilege right there to call you our Heavenly Father. Our spirit cries out, Abba, Papa, Daddy, thank you that you have made it so intimate that we can know you this way, that we can come to your throne of grace as full-fledged children, completely cleansed, righteous in your eyes, not because of what we've done, but because of Christ, your Son. And so we stand before you, clothed in his righteousness, and we make our requests, Lord. Your instructions are clear, and our request is simply... Give us the courage, the grace, the strength, and the obedient hearts we need to be like that servant in the parable who will simply go at his master's command. There are others who need to come, and even if some are making excuses, don't let that discourage you because there are others who won't. So keep persisting, keep extending that invitation because there are those who will respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and will come to this table. And so I pray, Lord, may Clarny Mennonite Church be a place that will continuously extend this invitation so that others may come to your table and become children of the King, just as we are so privileged to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.